Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. And if you've seen the beautiful black and red Batmobile when you enter the Smith Gallery, you won't be surprised that to learn that tomorrow we're opening an exhibition on superheroes in Gotham, which tells the story of the birth of comic book superheroes in New York City. And to complement this exhibition, the first film in our Bernard Nyren Schwartz classic film series, which is now in its fourth year, um, will be, and it will be screened on Friday, October 16th, with the double feature of The Mark of Zorro, who was the inspiration for Batman. So tonight's program, The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank our trustee, Mr. Schwartz, for his support, not only for the Distinguished Speaker Series, but for the Classic Film Series as well. His support has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians and now producers and directors to New York Historical for these programs. And I'd also like to thank another trustee with us this evening, Rick Reese, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a big hand. The program tonight will last an hour and include an answer and question session. And we invite audience members to the two aisles. We'll have two standing mics in the aisles for you to um, pose your questions. And we ask that you do this so everyone in the auditorium can hear you and those who will be listening to our recorded podcast can hear you. There'll be a formal book signing following the program and copies of Gil Troy's book will be available for sale in our museum store, which most of you I think know because most of you are members, correct? Yes on the 77th Street side. Just let us know if, if you're not a member. Any, any non-members here tonight? Because we, we will, you can become a member as soon as you walk out that door. We'd love to have you join us. We are thrilled to welcome back Gil Troy to the New York Historical Society. He's a professor of history at McGill University and a visiting scholar in governance studies at the Brookings Institutions. He is the editor of the re revised edition of the multi-volume classic History of Presidential Elections, as well as the author of several books on political history, including Hillary Rodham Clinton, Polarizing First Lady, and Mr. and Mrs. President, From the Trumans to the Clintons, and his latest, The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s. Our moderator is Leslie Stahl, who, who has been a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes for over 20 years, and she's 34 years old. <laughs> Prior to joining 60 Minutes, Ms. Stahl was the CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush presidencies. During much of that time, she also served as moderator on Face the Nation, CBS News's Sunday public affairs broadcast, where she interviewed Margaret Thatcher and Yasser Arafat, as well as virtually every top US official. So with that said, we can't wait to get them on stage. Before we begin, I just want to ask if you have a cell phone or a, a beeper or electronic device to please turn it off. No flash photography. And now please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. I have to turn my cell phone off before we do anything, because I wouldn't that be something if it went off? Well, before, while I'm turning it off, I will tell you that I know Gil because Gil is a presidential historian of note, and I met him when he wrote his book on the Reagans, and we met at the Reagan Library, and he is the most generous person. He was helping me. I didn't know what I was doing out there, but he, he taught me how to work in a presidential library. So we've been friends ever since. So this book is wonderful, having read every word. Uh, because it's not just, just a, a, a portrait of a president and his wife. It is that, but not only that, it is a portrait of the 10 years 
well, he was there for eight, but he calls it the age of Clinton. So we learn a lot about the 90s in general. Um, so what I guess my first question is, you call them the gay 90s, the Gilded Age, which they were. How much of that prosperity and sense of well-being that we had in the 90s do you attribute to, to Clinton, to his leadership, and to the choices he made? First, thank you, Leslie. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dale and Alex, for doing all this organization. Uh, it's not only that we bonded over Reagan Library, we also bonded over the way to Malibu. If you recall that um, you were going to stand on the 405 for hours and hours, and I showed you the back roads. Uh, so that was far more important than anything else I at you. Uh, the tension in the book and the fun of writing the book is this balance between Bill Clinton as political figure and Bill Clinton as cultural figure. And the question gets to the heart of it, which is that in some ways, Bill Clinton's policies, for example, the amazing budget bill, that he pushes through Congress in 1993, helped the prosperity of the 1990s take by off. By raising taxes. Uh, by raising taxes. And by the way, we also have to give what we call in the 90s props to George H.W. Bush, whose read my lips, no new taxes violated pledge. That budget bill, which hurt his presidency and ultimately lost him the presidency, also created the, the background for the 90s prosperity. So we see that presidential leadership has an impact, but also there are so many other things. I mean, one of the superheroes of the book is the American people, the ingenuity of the American people, the extraordinary talent of the American people. This is the age of the baby boomers boom. This is the age of the yuppies turning into grown-ups and uh, creating the technologi technological revolution that really changes things. Yeah, so, so is, is the force of history in those, in those years uh, determined more by Clinton and his big personality and the directions he wanted to take us in? Or is it technology, which changed so dramatically? Who, who's, who's the tail of that dog? These are the questions that keep graduate keep students in history night. up hours and hours. Uh, it's the dance, right? Um, Goes back and forth. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., in his classic book on Roosevelt, tells these two amazing stories. He says, in 1933, a man by the name of Winston Churchill is just up here on Fifth Avenue about to cross the street and being a British guy, he looks the wrong way and he's almost hit by a car and somebody pulls him back. Um, two months later, Franklin Roosevelt is next to Anton Chermak, the ch mayor of Chicago, and an assassin shoots Mrs. Roosevelt and kills Chermak. And Arthur Slinger Jr.'s question is, what would have happened if Churchill had died and Roosevelt had died? And we historians, on the one hand, are not allowed to use the word if, because we just deal with the is. But on the other hand, we see in the 30s and also in the 90s that leadership counts. Bill Clinton shaped his times. He did. But also, he was really, really, really lucky. Barack Obama was not as lucky. I remember Inauguration Day 2009, when you looked at Barack Obama, amidst the millions there, and you realized that he was saying, oh my goodness. Like, it was one thing to launch my campaign when everything looked like it was peace and prosperity, and if he had known that the market was going to crash, he would have shorted the market and become a billionaire like Paulson. But he realized all of a sudden, uh-oh, yeah. I got work to do. And Bill Clinton was blessed by that eight years of peace and prosperity. Uh, well, in some ways, your portrait of Clinton is that of a Greek tragedy he hero or anti-hero. So here's what you write in the book. This is... Uh, this is directly out of the book. For all his talent, his ambition, and his triumphs, he also left the nation economically unbalanced, far too vulnerable to the evil plans of Osama bin Laden, and politically polarized. He left the country politically deadlocked. Now, do you blame him for that, for, for our polarization? I'm surprised that that surprised me that you seem to be pinning it on him. He was a part of it. He was definitely a part of it. No, Look, explain the, that. The polarization, first of all, I love the fact that you did a reading, because now we can, you know, we can I say, I went to that. a reading tonight, <laughs> as opposed to just a talk, right? Now we're all fancy. Um, uh, if you look at Clinton's role, on the one hand, he should have been the great healer. He should have been the great uniter. Uh, his yeah. centrism, his vision of trying to compromise, his vision of trying to bring Republicans and Democrats together, his vision of trying to fix the liberals in the great society and save progressivism from, from itself by bringing in some of the Republican ideas and some of the conservative ideas of the importance of culture should have made him this idyllic uniting figure. 
and yet it didn't happen. But, but so, why didn't? Yeah. So two things. One is he himself, through his, and that's what makes him a, a tragic figure, through his own failings, through his own moral blind spots, through his own weaknesses, helped feed this problem that we're now uh, facing even more of the growing polarization between what we call blue America and red America, which is a term that starts emerging in the 1990s. But let's also be fair to Clinton and see that there are all kinds of changes that are occurring. We see the rise of media. And whereas once upon a time you had ABC, NBC, CBS as the arbiters who wanted to be neutral, who wanted to be objective, even if there's questions of bias. Uh, we tried. When you right, and, and, and we've talked about how it was important um, for Dan Rather, for Walter Cronkite, for you to hew that line. Right. And then all of a sudden you have Fox, you have MSNBC, oh, I should do Fox, MSNBC, uh, who are bringing in a more ideological twist. Right. You have Washington changing. Once upon a time in the 1950s and 1960s, congressmen, and it was mostly congressmen at the time, their spouses, their children, lived in Washington, D.C. So Republicans and Democrats went to church together, went to Little League together, went to school together, went to, went to family gatherings together. They knew each other in an intimate way. Now they fly home. See, they but appear that's on, technology. And that's technology. Of the airplane, right? So this is, this is, again, that dance. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of his own flaws and how he may have affected our sense of community or lack of it. Here's a, another sentence from the book. This another reading, I love it. Quite a sentence, though. I'm, I'm picking out all the juicy stuff. Clinton exhibited some telltale borderline behaviors of manics and hysterics with his gargantuan appetites, his temper tantrums, his operatic marriage, his self-destructive sexual addictions, his chameleon-like politics, and his insatiable drive. What do you really think of this guy? <laughs> so how important, really, how important is, I guess we can call this kind of temperament, how important is temperament to the tone of the, the president's temperament, to the, to the tone of society? I mean, does it really filter down, does it? I mean, this is really what your book I have a confession to, get to make. At. I was once a political scientist for about <laughs> five minutes. Um, my first course in college, I'm sitting and they're trying to explain to me this notion of a science to politics. And I say, there is no science to politics. That what excited me about history was contingency. And what excited me about contingency in history, about change in history, about irrationality in history was personality. So I think personality does count. And we look at, let's say, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, um, two people who share a marriage, share many common ideals, but their personalities and their political personas are so different that they function very differently in the American political arena. So Bill Clinton is this larger-than-life character. His strengths are in some ways superhuman, but his weaknesses are so debilitating that we end up being part of the first eight-year mass reality show. <laughs> and I would argue in some ways that Bill Clinton spawns Donald Trump. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have... Now, we have to hear this, everybody. We right? wouldn't... I, I believe that Americans wouldn't be putting up with Donald Trump and all his roguishness and all his color uh, if we hadn't had eight years of excusing, rationalizing, justifying Bill Clinton's behavior, partially because he was so damn effective as well. And, uh, and I looked it up. It turns out that Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were born within two months of each other. They're both baby boomers. And one of the stories here, and this is written by a post-baby boomer um, by a year or two, is baby boomers. And what's going on? What's their collective personality? And we see in the baby boomer collective persona a little bit of manic, a little bit of hysteric, a lot of drama, but also a lot of goodness. Well, I'm going to get to Monica a little later, but you bring it. Monica bring up, who? <laughs> bring up the baby. I was thinking reading your book, because you asked the question, or it suggests a question, how the heck did this man survive that scandal? And I think he survived because the baby boomers, who, with all our sexual freedom, we forgave him because he was one of us, right? Is that? A absolutely. You know, the, really? In... In 1993, when Clinton is inaugurated, January 1993, there's this sense of, we've arrived. 
right? It's a party. It's a baby boomer party. And in fact, um, what you see And is, that's what we got. Right. <laughs> um, for better and for worse. You see it in, in the inauguration. Who are the stars of the inauguration of the co-stars? I mean, Bill and Hillary. But you've got Barbara Streisand. You've got Kermit the Frog. You've got, dare I say the name, Bill Cosby. Um, and that, that Saturday night, uh, on Saturday Night Live, they're Wayne's World. The two guys are going, hey, Bill, don't you realize it's the 90s? It's not the 60s and 70s? Uh, because all the cultural icons from the 60s and 70s are being uh, pulled out. So this is the story of the baby boomer. It's also this, and one of the stories we're seeing is what I call the gender bender, right? That there's the great American sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, and by the 1990s, there are all kinds of changes in attitudes towards sexuality, and Bill Clinton benefits from that, exactly. but also in some ways is weakened by it. But you also talk about all the incredible things that happened under his presidency. The number of jobs increased. Crime dropped. In this, these things, either he determined them or it was just, as you suggest, incredible luck. The deficit disappears. Wages go up quite a bit. Um, oh, let me, let me put it this way. Of all the presidents in our lifetime, so let's go back to FDR, to now. How does he stack up? Is he on the upper end, the lower end, the middle? Where do you put him? That's a great question, and it really frustrated Bill Clinton when there was an anniversary event at Hyde Park. And again, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and, other, and Kenneth, John Kenneth Galbraith and other Roosevelt historians gather and they say, this guy doesn't rank. And he's furious. And, no, he, uh, and he sends a letter to them defending himself. Because um, that was Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton, <laughs> he also, one of my favorite Bill Clinton lines, he said, he regretted the fact that he didn't have a great war to show, to show his greatness. Uh, <laughs> Hello? Uh, we got to work through that one in the therapy session. Um, but all, but all presidents do that, by the way. Right, because they, they all you, do that. And, and right, it's and, not you, unique and, in that. And, and when you have the Ken Starr report, um, oh, wow. I didn't look at the racy parts. What I looked at was you didn't the, look okay, at the I did, racy part. I did, but but I looked at also the subpoena that showed what was in the presidential library and what was in the presidential library. All these big tones, tomes about Abraham Lincoln, about Franklin Roosevelt, about leadership. So to get to your question, because I don't want to just yeah, go get around to the it, right? Point. I got to get to the question. Um, that's what we do in graduate orals. Get to the question. Uh, I think Bill Clinton at his during the time didn't look like he could stack up, but I think you're absolutely right. When you look at what he accomplished, and it was his accomplishment, I think it's a big mistake right now for him to be distancing himself from the accomplishment in fighting crime. I mean, look around here. I jogged through Central Park this morning, and it was like Shangri-La. Uh, and it was partially because 100,000 police were deployed in New York City and elsewhere. It was partially because it was a new approach to fighting crime. And it was partially because the President of the United States realized that crime was not just an issue for law and order Republicans. It had to be an issue to help save progressivism from itself. It had to be an issue that Democrats cared about. It had to be an issue that wasn't a black-white issue because African-Americans were suffering as much, if not more, from the crime wave than, uh, than white Americans. And it had to be an issue that brought the country together. And on welfare reform, on crime, on the budget bill, he was able to really, through sheer will sometimes, push through compromises and make a difference. Well, what, as you were researching, and going through the presidential libraries and pulling out these tomes, as you say. What um, surprised you? And I, I know we've asked you to bring some photographs, because you have a huge stack of incredible photographs. So I, do you have a little yeah. clicker thing? Tell us what surprised you, and let us look at the pictures while you're telling us. So there I am in the Clinton Library, and I discover this um, treasure trove of over 1,000 photos that aren't digitized that are in these little booklets from a reporter named uh, Robert McNally who followed them in the 1992 campaign. And one of the things we see is they were young ones. <laughs> and, and look at, you could just, they're the oozing charisma. Um, and this is, this, these pictures are taken from after the Democratic National Convention when there's a real surge of excitement and what you also see is that for all their operatic marriage, for all their roller coaster marriage, Bill and Hillary are falling in love again. And Bill may be the world's greatest actor, Hillary isn't. And you can't <laughs> fake some of that. She can. Um, you he also have, I think, a, a major fashion he faux pas sexy. here with, this, uh, uh, with, with her little jacket. And there they are celebrating his birthday. Um, and uh, there's, of course, also this excitement with the other wonder couple of the 1990s, the Gores, 
um, and Al and Bill, and he, he is intelligent. He knows he's not going to be one of those presidents who looks for a vice president who's different from him. He wants to take someone who's similar to him and say, we are going to be the baby boomers saving the world. Um, and you just see this tremendous sense of excitement, this surge of energy going toward uh, November 1992. And indeed, you said the key word, sex appeal. I had this awkward moment where I'm on a job interview shortly after the election, and this very serious female dean of a college says to me, you know, my girlfriends and I, we are passing around an email chain, right? That was before the age of social media. We're passing around an email chain of how to, a 12-step program for getting over our crushes on Bill Clinton. I'm going like, okay, I'm a white male, it's 1993, what the heck am I going to say? <laughs> and, uh, but, but there was this real sense of, and it, what was it? You know, we forgot in 2008, because of all the excitement about Barack Obama, in 1992, a lot of people were saying, he's our Kennedy. Bill Clinton is our guy. Bill Clinton has that appeal. And it was forgotten after all the headaches of the 1990s. Um, what would you say are the common misconceptions about him and his presidency and his time? The biggest misconception, and one of the other big aha moments I had, is that his governance was simply finger to the wind, will o' the wisp, that he was poll driven, and that he was just a creature of Dick Morris. Um, he was indeed sensitive to polls. It's true that before he went on a family vacation, he polled to go to see what would be a respectable place and what would be a less respectable place. But at the end of the day, one of the things I realized is that Bill Clinton was as ideological a president as Ronald Reagan. He wasn't a right-winger, right? I'm but surprised he, he you're had, saying that. But he had, he had a take. And you go back to the 1980s, and in the mid-1980s, there's something called the Democratic Leadership Council, which forms, it's mostly Southern moderates, and they're looking at the failures of, great, of the great society. They're looking at the success of the Reagan revolution. And they're saying, we want to save liberalism. And you look at, at, you look at what's called the New Orleans Manifesto. You look at Bill Clinton's speeches to the DLC. You look at his announcement speech in 1992. And you realize that that is his governing plan, in the same way that Ronald Reagan articulates a governing plan. So it, and does, did he occasionally deviate from it? Yes. But fundamentally, what was the idea? that we have to bring some of the sensitivity from the Reagan era toward the importance of culture and the importance of what's going on in America outside of the political arena into the political arena. And the two key ideas there are one, fighting crime. I'm going to be a Democrat who fights crime, as I said earlier. And second, ending welfare as we know it. And in 1996, when Bill Clinton signs the welfare reform, and everybody's saying, ah, he's just doing it to win election, win re-election, if you go back to those speeches, you realize no, part of it was he was doing it because he said, this is my core ideology. And the core ideology was this third way ideology that he then tried to spread through Tony Blair and others. But you, and I've lost you. I see. I'm feeling no, the skepticism. No, no, yeah. Which I is am good. Skeptical because you write. Bring it on. Oh, that was George comes. W. Bush. Um, he, I think he sold himself as a liberal when he first ran. So I guess you're suggesting it was a little hypocritical? No, I'm saying it was a liberal centrism. I'm saying it was well, a new but, form but, okay, of... Okay, so in your book, you even quote Christopher Hitchens, departed Christopher yeah. Hitchens, saying that, and, and he says it in anger, that Bill Clinton locked in the Reagan revolution. And it's, it's a criticism from even the central, centrist Democrats. This is one of the struggles that Bill Clinton has, and I think this is one of the struggles that Hillary Clinton is having right now. How do you, on the one hand, hold on to your ideology, how do you, on one hand, a hold... A centrist ideology. Right. Yeah, okay. No, yeah. How do you hold on to that, but while also being sensitive to the broader changes going around? And when Bill Clinton talked about the third way, it was building on something that um, Sidney Blumenthal and others in the New Republic, the old version of the New Republic, um, the good version of the New yeah, Republic, yeah, right. exactly. uh, the pre-evil version of the New Republic, called The Conversation. And The Conversation popped up in 1991, 92, was how do we retake the White House? And there were two sides to it, which Bill Clinton brought together. One was simply tactical. They were so disappointed with Michael Dukakis. They were so disappointed with his limp defense of liberalism and what George H.W. Bush called the L word. They were so disappointed by his promise that he was just going to be a pragmatist and that he wasn't selling ideology. They were so disappointed that he was such a terrible candidate that he got Willie Horton. And they promised themselves that they were going to find a candidate who would fight like the Dickens to win. And they found one in Bill Clinton, who woke up every day saying, how do I advance my program? But they also wanted to say, how do we look under the hood, tinker with liberalism, and make sure that we can update it 
for the 1990s. Well, update it by moving centrism. it right. Or moving it center, but also keeping core ideas. Um, okay, so, so what does this tell us about Hillary? Should she become president? Will she do the same thing? Will she, right now, she's moving left as fast as she can, but. Thanks to Boini. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Bernie, right. But if you, but will she, do, will she, does she have the same ideology that Clinton had? Or different, do you think? Hillary who? No. <laughs> I, I say that because it's really hard to know where Hillary stands. Um, and which Hillary is running? Is it the Hillary who in the Clinton White House was considered to be one of the liberals? But despite her reputation as one of the liberals, she was one of the people who turned to Bill Clinton after the 1994 uh, disaster where they lost the, the Congress uh, to the Republicans and said, we've got to bring in Dick Morris, we've got to go back to the center. She was one of the, the people who understood that it was the 1990s that was still living, they were still operating in a Reaganized America. Um, as senator, she was a much more mainstream standard Democrat. Um, and I think that in 2008, when she was running for, what was that office, uh, president, um, and, and, and now again, she's just gotten so cautious that it's really hard to know what, what she will really bring to the White House. Um, really? I think, though, what's also interesting is that there's a style of Clinton governance that she will bring. That there's one of the amazing things about Bill Clinton is that he loved policy. And one of the things about Hillary Clinton is she loved policy too. And uh, she loves policy too. And I think that energy, that sense of we're going to wake up every day and we're going to stay deep into the night. Bill Clinton was calling people at 3 a.m. Uh, trying to convince them, trying to cajole them, trying to consult with them, trying to play cards with them. Uh, it's a tremendous energy. Uh, and that, that energy is very important to the American people and in the American presidency. Well, you've written about a lot of our presidents, probably most of them with some of your, the survey books, but concentrated on others. Um, All of which are on sale and we're building toward Christmas and Hanukkah. Can, can a person be a good president if they're not a good politician, if they're not a great campaigner? And you know why I'm asking that question. I think it's really hard. I think especially in the 20th century, in the 21st century, we started, we started seeing it in the television age, and now it's emerging very clearly in the 21st century. Politics is about public leadership. It's about leadership in a democracy. And for someone to say, I'm just going to be a policy person, I'm not going to play with politics, is very problematic. And we saw it with people like Richard Nixon. Uh, we saw it with people like Jimmy Carter. And I think this is one of the tensions with Hillary Clinton. Bill Clinton is a natural politician. He loves people. He's a people person like exactly. Ronald Reagan was a exactly. people person. Maybe we're and, seeing with Obama And we're too. seeing with Obama too. Um, and what you're seeing is... Well, I'm is, asking you that question in light of Hillary and at least the way people feel about her as a politician. She, right, she doesn't. She, she doesn't, doesn't seem to enjoy it. As she much. doesn't exude that love of people. She doesn't exude that love of the job, um, and that's part of the job, the, the job description. But look, let's let's admit she came into politics through the back door, um, or through or through the marital uh, vows. Yeah. Um, her mother dreamed of her becoming the first female chief justice of the Supreme Court, and in some ways, it was a more suited position for her. She's. She, she was known always as a brainiac. Her nickname in high school, and it's sexist, and I apologize, was Sister Frigidaire. Um, <laughs> ouch. Frigidaire, that's an old word for, for refrigerator. And he was Elvis, he was Everyone Bubba. Everyone in this room knows what right. a Frigidaire is. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was Elvis, he was Bubba. He just had that natural love. Yeah. And by the way, he also, well, the first time we talked about my book, you said something really insightful about Bill Clinton. You said, he came from somewhere. And you said, this oh, guy, right. Barack Obama, comes right. from nowhere. Right. Um, right. And, and Bill Clinton came from the South. And for all his baby boomer nonsense and for all the sexual antics and for all his modernism, he also was rooted in that South of the rumbling trains and the linoleum floors and, the, and, and, and that sense of position and place in the South. His grandfather ran this corner grocery store and that was really important to him. And that rooted him in American tradition. And that rooted him in an understanding of what America is. And it also rooted him to the people. And then as a small town governor of a really, really, really small state, you go to Little Rock, Arkansas, and you go, God bless America. The fact that this guy can go yes. from that, yes. <laughs> that backwater to Washington is extraordinary. And you realize that he just had that touch. He understood people, and he liked people. He still has and it. it helps. Yeah. I, yeah. um, I want to ask you about the, all the scandals and all the stumbles that dogged the two of them throughout those eight years, and whether there was a right-wing conspiracy 
And I ask you in light of what Kevin McCarthy, who I don't know if you've seen the news today, he withdrew True. from the race for speakership, that he, he's now said that this committee, the Benghazi committee, looking into Hillary's actions, was really designed to destroy her candidacy. So it makes me ask, was there a right-wing conspiracy? Or, or did they just make that up? The thing I love about being a historian is, unlike a Washingtonian, I don't have to be just a left-winger or just a right-winger. I can, I can find that balance. Good. And I think we that, when, that. We, when we look at that issue, um, we see, yes, there is a vast right-wing conspiracy. Yes, there's a certain way in which the Republicans look at Bill and Hillary Clinton as dementors, um, those Harry Potter uh, villains who steal the soul of Republicans. And centrism, which bothers liberals, also bothers conservatism, conservatives because they feel like, you're hijacking some of our key ideas. And that led to an obsession with Clinton. And we see it with the Benghazi Committee. And we saw it with the uh, Whitewater investigation. And we saw it with tens of millions of dollars frittered away on, on idiocy that there's this need to take minor mistakes that Bill and Hillary Clinton make and turn them into high crimes uh, and not even misdemeanors. So yes, they have been unfairly treated. On the other hand, and this gets to that Greek tragedy, they have, both of them, again and again, this moral blind spot. It's extraordinary how people who know they're under scrutiny keep on doing things which they should know better not to do. The email server, why do that? And the last days of the Clinton administration, this to me is the, the real, like the, the tell, like one of those things, when it, really in a Greek tragedy. The last days in the, Greek, uh, in, the, in the Clinton administration, you have this sell-off of pardons um, to Mark Rich and to others um, based on access and influence, which demeans the presidency and undermines Bill Clinton. And in some ways, even tawdrier is uh, uh, two things. One is... The Clintons, Bill, Hillary Clinton had flown to Omaha, Nebraska, and had opened up a gift registry. And people like Steven Spielberg and other Hollywood types and, and, and donors from New York were sending tens of thousands of, silver, of, of gifts of silver and furniture to the two houses in Chappaqua and in Washington. And then they take about $30,000 of furniture that had been deeded to the White House and they ship it off to those two, two <laughs> helms. And you're going, why? Right? Yeah, why and Hillary gave the answer, because we were broke. Right? She'd already, she was already on her way to signing a $10 million <laughs> book contract. They knew that they were going to be uh, globetrotting and, and, and raising money through speeches. Why this need to do it? And it goes to this certain sense of a moral blind spot, a certain sense of they just can't help themselves because they're so convinced of their self-righteousness. Speaking of baby boomers. Oh, is that a baby boomer thing? That's a baby boomer thing, um, I think. Well, so, so how did, in your opinion, all the scandals, and particularly Monica, how did that affect, I guess I, guess I would say, the course of American history? What, what, because he had the scandal, what didn't he get done? What did he get done? What changes were brought about because of these things? 1997 was perhaps the best year in the Clinton presidency. And uh, it's after the re-election. There's a certain sense of the, you know, the stock market is, is, is booming. Jobs are being created. Crime is going down. All these indexes that you mentioned uh, are working. And, and Bill Clinton launches a really important conversation about race in America. And he gives a speech in San Diego at a commencement in which he talks about the American future, which is not just going to be a black-white future. He sees that there's the browning of America, the rainbowing of America, that rather than just being stuck in this black-white dichotomy, we're going to have Hispanics, we're going to have Asians. The impact of the 1965 Immigration Act is extraordinary in changing America. And he sees that, and he wants to have a conversation on race. That conversation dies as soon as the Monica Lewinsky oh. scandal um, begins. And he, as a Southerner, as someone who had such a deep commitment to African-American rights, mm -hmm. as someone who welcomed the Little Rock Nine through the doors of the, that schoolhouse where they had been barred from 50 years earlier and welcomes them. The President of the United States flies down to Little Rock and welcomes them. He had this tremendous love for African Americans, a tremendous connection to African Americans. And that just is gone. That's just one example of the that's tremendous potential. That's directly because of this that, Yeah, that's, that's lost in that. Um, you see it in the rewriting of the State of the Union speech in January 1998. Uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal breaks a week before the State of the Union. 
and the speechwriters have to go through and pour over every word to make sure there isn't anything that can be turned into some kind of double entendre. They, uh, that's my French because I'm from Montreal. Um, they, they have to make sure that when he talks about values or family, the Republicans won't hoot him. And what they do is in some ways they denude the speech. Now, Bill Clinton being a genius when it comes to State of the Union, nevertheless turns it into a great moment and turns it into a moment where he says, I want to govern. And the American people ultimately say, throughout that awful year, and especially in the midterms, we want you to govern. But his governance is limited because of Monica Lewinsky. Uh, one of his chiefs of staff said, Monica Lewinsky's scandal um, changed American history. And I argue that Monica Lewinsky's, <laughs> and she doesn't want that uh, designation either, is one of the most influential people in the 1990s. You don't say that lightly. I don't say it lightly. And it's, and it's you know, the Time Magazine designation of for better and for worse. Um, and we also know, we've now seen you know, through her interviews how traumatic it was for her and how mean people were to her. And you know, she talks about the cyberbullying. She was the first person cyberbullied. But nevertheless, her role in that scandal um, ended up really changing uh, the course of the Clinton presidency. Although he tried and he really, you, know, you speak to people from the Clinton White House and they said he would have the meeting with the lawyers, close the door, come into another office, kind of like <laughs> change things around and then just start talking being and saying, let's focus on being president. And the American people saw that and respected it. Uh, I don't want to ignore the fact that a great part of this book is the 90s and not just the Clintons. And I'm, you write a, an awful lot about the culture of the time. So I'm wondering, um, well, maybe you can walk us through this. Let's talk about movies because everybody loves movies. Um, what were the big movies that you think to, sort of emblem, emblemized, is that a word, the, the, the decade? And what effect did Clinton, was Clinton the reason these movies mm -hmm. came out, or were the movies influencing him? What, how did that, that go back know, and forth? Again, it's, it's that, Talk that, about that, that important culture. question of, of yeah. the dance. Um, you take a, a, a film like Forrest Gump, which is this come from nowhere hit. No one expects that this really long movie about this somewhat limited person is going to be a huge hit. And, what's, and what's, the, what's the story there? The story is in some ways trying to make sense of the 1960s. And that's, I think, part of, you know, one of the things going on with the baby boomers is looking back in the 1960s and figuring out what's going on. Um, and part of the story also is prosperity. What happens? How, how does he get ultimate vindication? Bubba Gump, right? <laughs> you know, the Bubba Shrimps. The, the, you know, the, and, and, and there's that, it goes back to your first question, the Gilded Age, right? This, the 1920s, peace, prosperity, run by Republicans. The 1950s, peace, prosperity, run by Republicans. The 1980s, peace, prosperity, run by Republicans. All of a sudden, the 1990s, you have this democratic Gilded Age. And what does that mean? In some ways, it means you don't have the Democrats in opposition putting the brakes on some of the excess. And we pay for that in 2008, and we're still paying for that. But culturally also, you see a kind of celebration of, of, of money, of prosperity, which is good because everybody wants some, but also of a kind of uh, excess and greed. And that's the, that's the tension, that's the American dance also. But it was also, he's the first president after the Cold War ends. Huh. So we are not just feeling pro prosperous, we're feeling like we won, we won. this Absolutely. huge battle, global battle, and uh, so we were feeling good in many ways. Do the movies reflect that wonderful spirit that we had at that point in time? There's, there's, a, dent, there's, there's a sense of, of the spirit. Now, with the Cold War, there's actually two different phenomena. On the one hand, it leads to the sense of we are the hyperpower, we are the superpower, we can do anything. But it also leads to a certain sense of who are we? And what I call mm. the Republic of Nothing. Um, that we once were a republic of something. The Cold War gave us a structure. It gave us a way of understanding life and a way of justifying all that we did. And Bill Clinton sometimes jokes in the Oval Office, boy, I wish we had the Cold War, because it's hard to know what you do with Bosnia if you're not doing it through a Cold War lens. It's oh, hard to know to what you do in foreign policy. I was on a trip when George Herbert Walker Bush was still president um, and to Russia, I guess the Soviet Union in those mm -hmm. days. And a man named Georgi Arbatov, who was part of the Kremlin operation, told a group of Americans who were there that and the Cold War had ended. And he said, you are not, just what you're saying, he told us, though, you are not going to know who you are. No. You have defined yourself against us. We're evil. You're good, you tell yourself. 
when, when you don't have us as your enemy, you're going to lose yourself. You're not going to know who you are, and you're going to be lost. I never forgot this. Uh -huh. It was chilling, and boy, it did play out in the years after. And that's what I call the Republic of Nothing, and that leads to that awful moment yeah. on September 11th, 2001, when we look back on the decade of peace and prosperity and said, what did we do with this great gift? How come we didn't do more? How come we didn't do more to fix our society? How come we didn't do more to do good? Um, and one of the, one of the things after 2000, September 11, 2001 is this sense of we need to do better. We need to, and there's a certain kind of sweetness and idealism that emerges from that horrific, horrific day. From that day. Well, that that's day. gone too, that right. sweetness. And, right. and yeah. we're all New Yorkers here, and so. we remember right. Right. that incredible Good. spirit. Um, we have become um, strangely kind of a, a lonelier place and a more, mm -hmm. even more polarized place. And I've always thought it was because of technology, not because of any president, that it was the, the invention, or I guess we can blame Al Gore, the invention <laughs> of the internet, because, because we are becoming more withdrawn and isolated and polarized. Uh, I want to ask you again, and, and you know, they're setting up mics so you can soon ask questions yourself, but I want to ask, if, if, we, if it's right to blame these presidents mm -hmm. for things like this that are so huge that are happening to us, it's almost out of our control. It's happening to us. Um, you know, the, you, you mentioned television, the 24-7 right. constant criticism that a president goes through. But what we go through as individuals, it, it, it's inexorable. We can't fight the technological wave. We can't reelect somebody and get a change in this. You're right that the technological changes in the 1990s are extraordinary. He talked about a bridge to the 21st century, and it really was true, right? Think about it. At the start of 1990, Amazon is just a river. Google is just a really big number. <laughs> PayPal is something loan sharks say. Uh, and, the, and, and all of a sudden, these things that now are central parts of our lives become, become powerful and become invented. And that's not because of Bill Clinton. But in some ways, I always give Bill Clinton credit because, you know, if we had a kinder political culture, we would say that not only Al Gore, but Bill Clinton really did invent the internet, because they understood in a way that, I mean, I lived through that time. I didn't have the, the vision that these two politicians had about the importance of, of wiring up America, uh, the importance of making sure that you wouldn't have uh, high-tech haves and high-tech have-nots, the, the importance of understanding that this really was going to change uh, how we live. So the, the challenge is understanding, yes, some of these things are huge. I mean, we now live in this world where friends are virtual on Facebook. They're not real. And one of the things that scares me about America today is what scares you, that um, we're so into our little technologies yeah. and we're so into um, our individuating technologies that we've lost community, family, true friendship, true communication. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's, I don't think and, a president and that's not, that's not a president's fault. But right. presidents can make a difference. See, that's ultimately, as a presidential historian, uh, the reason why I spend my time on this is because I do think that leadership counts. I do think that ideas matter. And I do think that personality uh, affects things. And if you put that together, what you say is, yes, there, in, every dec in every decade, there are. And that's why I think you have to write this kind of a book and not just write about the presidency, but put it in the context of the technological changes, the ideological changes, the economic changes, the cultural changes. But you also see, let's play this if game. If George H.W. Bush had been reelected, um, if who was that guy who ran Dole, right, um, in 1996, right? They said Dole in 96, and the Democrats joked Dole is 96. Um, <laughs> although he was the same age as Hillary is today. Uh, when he ran for when president. When he ran for president, and all, they, they all made fun of him with their ageism. Uh, that would have been different. Is it she been younger different. than Reagan was? Uh, yes. Um, She's younger she, than Reagan was when he ran. When he started, but just barely. But by, yeah, just by a almost minute. a year. Um, but it, you know, uh, we're also living in an age where, you know, we, we, we live longer, so, and we're healthier, and we have, you know, part That's of the true. magic of medicine. That's true. So the, the point is that, yes, there are these big, overwhelming forces that, that change things, but why do we care so much about the presidential campaign? Why do we care so much about who the president is? Because the president also affects things, and the president is the single individual, not just in the United States, but in the world, who sets a tone, who really makes a difference. Are you having written this book, and it is a great book? Uh, are you? You're going to get the check from my mother, who's right over here with my father. Your mother. Say here? thanks so much for being nice. Is your to mother me. here? Yeah, my mother and my father. So, 
Well, I have to meet them personally. Yeah, first. um, are, having written the book, are you optimistic or <laughs> pessimistic about our future? That's a big question. That's a big question. Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like a politician. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where I'm optimistic is the way I start my 2001 chapter is I call it America the Functional. And I think we have a tendency, we journalists, we historians, we citizens have a tendency sometimes to focus so much on what we haven't achieved, so much on the problems, that we forget the miracles of waking up in the morning and feeling safe when you walk on the streets. We wake up and you go to an elevator and you plummet, uh, and, you, and, you, and you, you plunge skyrocket. high, and you, and you skyrocket high, and you plummet down safely. Um, you go on airplanes, all these things, all the, you know, the, the magic of medicine, there are all these magical things that are going on in the world, and technology is a part of that. That's where I'm optimistic. But what really scares me uh, about today is this loss of a certain sense of the American soul. Uh, this, what I've been calling this republic of nothing. Now, I also say that we've become a republic of everything. So much more open, welcome, plur welcoming, pluralistic, tolerant than ever before. But there used to be a certain sense, and we had our limits. We had our problems in the 50s and the 20s and, and before that. But used to be a certain sense of America standing for something. It's what I call the Richard Stans test, because remember, to Republic for which it stands, right? Um, we need to pass the Richard Stans test. We have to stand for something. And what do we stand for when it's all about the iPad, the iPod, the me, 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 the my, 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 the more, 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 the now, 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 the mall, 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 the trend, trend, trend? Who are we? And that's where leadership really becomes important. And the challenge that I put out to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and Mark Rubio, and I should mention them all because I'm not predicting anyone's going to succeed or fail, is don't just come up with policies. We need a vision for this country. We need a sense of how, with all these magical technologies, which both undermine, individuate, make us more selfish, but also can somehow bind us and, and uh, bind us together, how do we go forward? And that's what I'm not hearing. And you're not hearing it from any of the candidates I'm not hearing either. from any of the candidates because they're all too uh, afraid of their own shadows. You're right. All right, so there'll be questions after my questions. So if you have questions, think about it, and then we'll invite you up to the microphones. You know, I'm, I've, I don't get this. Almost every president gets around to having a war with the press. And it's always foolish, and it, it's ridiculous, because it's not going to get them anywhere, but they do it. But none as bad as the Clintons. And I know that they were warned that it makes no sense, and they don't win with that kind of thing, and they're still doing it. So where did that, where, tell us about that. Where did that come it's, from? It's a great question, because... It's it particularly anomalous with the Clintons because they are you, right, to the extent that you represent the press, right? They're, they're, they're generational peers. Um, they, they had been friends. They, had, they, they came from the same schools. They went through the same right. experiences. And part of the excitement of 1992 was an excitement generated by reporters of our time has come, our guy is there. And that leads to, I think, a greater sense of betrayal also. Now, let me step back and say that when I was in Washington, uh, doing research for this book, I spoke to people who'd worked in the Clinton administration, in the Bush administration, and now in the Obama administration. I said, of the three presidents, who was given the roughest time by the press? The Clintonites said Clinton. The no. Bushies well, said Bush. And the Obamans said Obama. Okay. The Obamans talked about racism. The Bushies talked about a kind of you know, liberal conspiracy against the conservatives. And the Clintons said they just hated us. So you're, you're right. There is this kind of... There is a certain sense of war, but, uh, and, the and, and, and Clinton was repeatedly warned not to do this. And one of the things I say in the book is that they ended up being the angriest administration since Richard Nixon's. Yeah, and, it's true. And I think it's partially because they also end up feeling that sense of betrayal. I think uh, it's betrayal because um, when I was covering the White House, the Democrat, Jimmy Carter's people felt, I think, and I think maybe the Clintons felt this, that they thought that the press was on their side. Right. And so betrayal's the right word. They felt betrayed. The Republicans never thought never. the press was gonna be on their side. They had a great relationship with the Washington Press Corps because there was no expectation. They actually respected what we did. And Reagan had a good, good exchange with the press. They understood the, the boundaries. I don't think Democrats, for the most part, do. The Clintons read all those those stories, they watched all the Fox News uh, 
claims saying that the press is liberal, that the press votes democratic, and you know, the leaders of the mainstream press do disproportionately vote yeah, democratic. So, they're, they're so they ours. expected them to yeah, be ours. Exactly. And, and a number of Clintonites also said something else, and it goes back to your, your uh, insight that I mentioned earlier. They said, you know what? It was a kind of Northeastern bias. It was a Northeastern bias against these Southerners, these Southern outsiders. Jimmy um, Carter said that the, all the time. Right, the Clintonites felt that they weren't getting a fair shake because they were looked at as yahoos. And I think that that's, I think that's a kind of rationalization. Uh, and Taylor Branch, who was both a reporter and a, and, and a writer, who was a very good friend of Bill Clinton's, uh, who sat with Bill Clinton up late at night yeah. uh, recording to him. Write has that this book. amazing, amazing yeah. book. Good book. In, in the book, he talks about an exchange with Bill Clinton. He says, don't fight the press. You're going to lose. And Clinton can't help himself. In the same way he can't help himself in other ways, um, <laughs> impulse control was not one of his strengths. <laughs> All right. Anybody want to come up to the mics? Because if you don't, I'm going to keep going. Here we go. Here we go. So an if question for you. What would you think Clinton's presidency would be like if he were president today in what some people have called an era of continuous partial attention? That's a great question. Great question. Uh, you know, the, again, as I said, you know, Clinton benefited from the peace and prosperity of the 1990s, but he also regretted that he didn't have some of the challenges that Barack Obama was faced with. And, you know, one of the great strengths of Bill Clinton, which I think George W. Bush and Barack Obama lacked, was because he loved people and because he loved politics, and I think also because he had been such an effective governor of Arkansas for so long, is he understood how to sit down with Republicans and negotiate. Um, the story of Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich is a kind yeah, of dysfunctional stunning. love affair. But it's right? stunning. Where on the one hand, they hate each other, and they each look at each other as the symbol of all that they don't want to be and all that they've been running against. But on the other hand, they can sit down and talk and negotiate. And there are some amazing compromises which occur uh, over the budget, over the crime bill, over the welfare reform in the 1990s, which we haven't seen in the Bush era and we haven't seen in the Obama era. So uh, aware of the limits of the if question, uh, I, I think that his kind of leadership uh, might be useful today. He was a schmoozer. I have a, a question about uh, Camp David. And uh, it's always bothered me that uh, in Camp David, at one point, uh, Arafat said to Clinton that there was no connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. And uh, what was reported was that Clinton reacted very strongly and with some select words, which I won't repeat. What are you talking about? Are you crazy, etc.? But it never seemed to have had any policy implications that somebody who was leading the Palestinian people could be so far divorced from reality. And, and this is also continued with Abbas today. And it, 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 it sort of got thrown away and it, it never implemented in terms of a policy uh, change because of that uh, exchange. Look, you know, one of the great tragedies of the 1990s is the Soviet Union ends rather peacefully. South Africa, South African apartheid, ends rather peacefully. Northern Ireland comes to some kind of conclusion These rather peacefully. These are all in the 90s. These are wow. all in the 90s, right? It's really something. And, and there's an assumption, as all that magic is happening, that the same magic is going to occur with the Israelis and Palestinians. And you have the Oslo peace process, which originally starts, note the name Oslo, starts in Norway, but Bill Clinton, in the best sort of way, hijacks it and starts becoming the person who, who, who stands for it. And he hosts Yasser Arafat more than any other foreign visitor in the, in the Clinton White House. And in the last days of the Clinton administration, Yasser Arafat comes to the White House and being the schmoozer, schmoozing the schmoozer, uh, Arafat says, Mr. Clinton, you're a very great man. And Bill Clinton yells at him. He says, I'm not a great man. I'm a failure because of you. Oh, wow. Really? And, really? Uh, and, and he said, and he basically says what, you're, what this gentleman is saying, that, that Arafat's, Arafat had been cast by the United States of America to be Nelson Mandela. And at the end of the day, he was Yasser Arafat. And that was a huge policy mistake that uh, people are still paying for. But in Clinton's defense, he felt that he couldn't pick the Palestinian leader. The Palestinians had to pick their own leader. And he just wanted that Palestinian leader to act differently. You know, he's a great example of how a revolutionary who leads the movement cannot be the leader and right. cannot trans can't move out of the original role. And in the oral histories in the Clinton Library, all these advisors said, what was going on with him? He just couldn't make that move. 
Um, given uh, you know now what you know about Bill, uh, what role do you see him playing in Hillary's uh, campaign? <laughs> and then if he if she wins, what role do you see him playing in her administration? It's you know it's a great question. It goes back to this central dance between the Clintons uh, in the 1990s. You know there was that great joke. Um, in 1993 that the presidential motorcade is driving around and they run out of gas and um, they go to a gas station and the gas station attendant turns out to be an old boyfriend of Hillary Clinton's and uh, Bill Clinton looks at him with all that yuppie disdain for the working class um, and says, oh, you know, Hillary, if you had married him, um, you'd be Mrs. Gas Station Attendant. And she goes, Bill, if you hadn't married me, you'd be Mr. Gas Station Attendant, and he'd, and he'd be Mr. President. Um, and, and that's always been the question of, you know, who helps who? And one of, the, one of the really special things about their relationship is that he is the people person, but she was often the, the spine, and she was often the one, like Nancy Reagan, who knew how to cut the losses, fire people when necessary. Be, he so wanted to be loved. Um, that, and she wasn't afraid sometimes to be hated, and you need that. So uh, it would be an interesting thing to see. We saw in 2008 that he became a liability. He got so angry, because talk about betrayal, right? The fact that the African-American community was turning on him, the fact that Barack Obama, this, 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 this guy from nowhere, wasn't that he was African-American, was that he was, he was from nowhere, he hadn't, he hadn't paid his dues, was emerging and was, you know, destroying the Clinton master plan, made him furious, and they ultimately had to limit Clinton. And if you notice, as Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton had Bill you know, way off in, in the orbit. And the challenge will be, what will you do with him uh, if he becomes well, we first man? Well, we think he was in orbit, uh, but we don't really know if he really was in orbit. Right. Uh, so but, let me ask you something. Do you think that needing to be loved is, is a good quality for a president? Bernie Nussbaum, who has an extraordinary, he was the first White House counsel and was friends with Hillary from the 1970s, um, and has an extraordinary oral history in the Miller Center, uh, oral histories which you should Google and read, says that the biggest problem with Bill Clinton, uh, and it goes back to something that Mama Clinton, Virginia Kelly, uh, said about Clinton, and about her, about Bill Clinton, about Roger Clinton, was that whenever they walked into a room, they could sense who was the person who least liked them, and they would spend time trying to woo them. And he said, that is a major mistake for a leader. And Nussbaum talks about this need of Bill Clinton's to be loved, which he says leads to um, him listening not to old experienced hands like Leon Panetta, Alice Rivlin, and Bernard Nussbaum, who were the grown-ups in the White House, who had other careers, who had jobs, law practices to go back to, but instead are listening to the kids, the George Stephanopoulos, who were so afraid of the press, who were so afraid of the bad headlines, that when this whitewater thing emerges, they say, go with a special prosecutor, Nussbaum, ah, saying, don't, don't, right. don't. Um, you're going to make a huge mistake for yourself, you're gonna, you, you, because once you have a special prosecutor, they have to justify themselves. And Bill Clinton, trying to be loved, trying to stop the negative headlines, supports the special prosecutor, signs that authorization, and he in his memoir says it was the biggest mistake I made. And Nussbaum in the, in the memoirs, it just jumps off the page with his frustration and anger. He didn't listen to me. Yeah, that was so that, that, is a, that is a weakness. You mentioned that Bill Clinton was uh, regretted that he never had a war to fight. Uh, he, he did get involved in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm. Right. Uh, can you uh, answer why he wasn't interested in getting involved in Rwanda? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a real uh, tragic mistake that he made. Um, one of the awful things when you, when you go back to the 1990s, you see that the Clinton White House at that moment was so much in its damage control mode, so, so headline driven, uh, so fearful of exercising American power that the big fight is against reporters and against human rights activists who are daring to call Rwanda a genocide even though 800,000 people are killed within a matter of months, because if it's called a genocide, then America is forced by treaties to step in, and they don't want to intervene. And one of the interesting things that happens to Bill Clinton in the White House is there's a learning curve. And initially, he comes in as Newt Gingrich called it, a McGovernick, as a, you know, as a dove who had really been anti-Vietnam and was uncomfortable with American power. Do you know who taught him how to salute? Ronald Reagan. Uh, Clinton had no idea, and he visits Ronald Reagan uh, after, he becomes uh, after he's elected and before he becomes president, and Reagan gives him lessons. Uh, and he's afraid and Reagan to learned it from the movies. Right. <laughs> uh, he's afraid to assert power, and uh, the Bosnian in intervention late, and the Kosovo War, 
is a reflection of the learning curve that all presidents go through, where he realizes, and at the time, his pollster saying, don't do it, and he says, I'm a president, I've got to lead. And it's actually a moment of great political courage for Bill Clinton, where he, because he felt guilty about having let the Bosnia situation uh, deteriorate for so long. He felt guilty about the massacres that occurred. He felt guilty about Rwanda, um, and he actually changed it. But we also see that with the big mistake of the uh, 1990s is there's data, um, there's information that Osama bin Laden has declared war on the United States of America, that he's a serious threat. Um, and George W. Bush failed to lead after he became president, but Bill Clinton failed to lead on that too. Uh, and it's partially their fault, it's partially the fault of you know, the press, reporters. In 2000, no one's asking questions about terrorism. No one's asking questions about Osama bin Laden, even after the USS Cole bombing. We learn from Oprah that Al Gore likes to, speak, likes to sleep naked. <laughs> Got to get that out of my head. Um, and, all kind, and, and, that Bill, and that George W. Bush likes to eat Tex-Mex, but we don't learn about their stand on terrorism because we were in massive collective denial. And Bill Clinton's talked about his regrets sure. many sure. times over yeah. Rwanda. He's great see, at regretting. He, yeah. I see it. We, we're getting the hook. He bites the lip. Well, Gil Troy, Leslie Stahl, thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you all always for coming, for being our wonderful members, and Gil Troy's book is on sale in our museum store. Just to remind you, The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s. Thank you all so much. Good night. Thank you.